I'm Nadia Kral, and this is Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. Welcome to Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast, where we highlight the strength of our city, the spirit of our people, and share your stories of compassion. Welcome back to Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. I'm your host, Will Rucker. Thank you so much for listening. I am just thrilled that you are here yet again for this episode. Our guest today is truly going to inspire and encourage you, but I want to thank you for inspiring and encouraging me. I really appreciate the notes that you are sending of encouragement, letting me know that the show is fulfilling its mission. That just means so much. I want to say thank you before we get into the episode here. Now, let me tell you about our guest. Nadia Kral graduated from the Boyd School of Law right here at UNLV in Las Vegas in 2000. For the past 12 years, she has had a successful law practice, and now Nadia is running for district court judge. Nadia's many roles have included judge pro tem, mediator, arbitrator, appeals officer, and more. When she is not working, Nadia loves to rock climb in the beautiful Red Rock Canyon with only the sounds of nature to surround her. Now, we can't endorse her as a candidate. However, we do endorse her message of compassion, and that's why she's on the show today. So without further ado, let's get into it. Nadia, thank you so much for being on the podcast, and I am grateful to have someone with your experience and your background to share with our fellow, what are we, Las Vegans? Is that what we call ourselves? Yeah, Las Vegans, I think, some of them too. <laughs> to share with them how compassion and justice really are compatible and intertwined in a lot of times. So I want to just start off with the toughest question of the show, and that is, who are you? And how do you define compassion? I really view myself just a, a traveler on this earth, just like everybody else, and that we're only here for a short period of time. That's how I view myself. How, for me personally, compassion is stopping what you're doing and looking at things from other people's perspective and trying to help them. That's really what compassion means for me. Yeah, I think that, that that's beautifully put because you're looking at it from their perspective, which for me is step one on any type of relationality, you know, really being able to put yourself not necessarily in their shoes, but at least looking the same direction. Yeah, because we all have different experiences. You know, my father actually would tell me when I was young, I was about 10 years old, and he would tell me, you have 10 years of experience that no one else has. And that always stuck with me. Whenever somebody is younger or they're starting a new career and they don't feel that they are experienced enough, I always say, you know, whatever their age is, you know, if, if you're 25 years old, that may seem young compared to other people. But I always tell them, you have 25 years of experience no one else has. So don't ever devalue yourself you bring something to the table that no one else does. That is so important for people to recognize that each of us is infinitely valuable because of that, because we have our own unique perspective. And each vantage point, while they may not necessarily completely agree, they're definitely valid vantage points. So as a professional in law, I'm sure you hear the same story from many different angles. And sometimes you're like, 
what in the world is this? So I, I kind of want to talk about that. How, how do you see the world without always going for that legal lens? I have done both sides in both civil and criminal. So it's easier for me to see it from each person's perspective because I have been in each of those shoes. So for me, and I'm also have experience as a neutral. So it's easier for me to look at it that way. And there's validity in each person's perspective. I, right now I'm running for judge. And so I talk to a lot of voters. And one of the things that I hear a lot of is a lot of voters, they say they want empathy and compassion from judges. Wow. That is on one end of the spectrum. But yet I also hear from other people that they want judges who are tough on crime. So those may seem like they are polar opposites, but at the end of the day, I really believe people want the same thing. They all want to be healthy and happy and be able to provide for their families. Everyone just has a different way about going about to that end result. That is so important to, to say. Because a lot of times, particularly in the times that we're in, and you're running for judge, so you know how, how tough it can be to get your point across while still being a human being and to be misquoted and misunderstood. But at the end of the day, everyone does really want the same things, even if the road to getting there seems like it's different. So how did you end up in law to begin with? Wow. <laughs> Well, when I was a, a little kid, I have an older brother and an older sister, and my family just saw that that was something in me, even as a young child, where I liked to help people and advocate for them. And I remember being a young child and my brother saying to me, okay, I'm going to be the doctor and you're going to be the lawyer. Oh my. And I, I just said, okay. And then that was it. That was what my life plan was going to so my brother did become a physician. He works at Sunrise Hospital here in Las Vegas, and I did become a lawyer. But I also had a lot of experiences that even started in elementary school. Okay. My parents divorced when I was very young. But for me, my parents fought a lot. So for me, the day they told me they were getting divorced was one of the best days of my life. And this was back in the 80s when divorce wasn't as common as it is today. And my teacher would say, oh, you're so well adjusted from coming from a broken home. Wow. And so they would say, you know, little Susie or Johnny is having a tough time. Can you talk to them? So they would actually take me out of class and have me go into the playground alone with these other children, privately, one-on-one, -on -one, me with them. And me just telling them, like, look, you're going to get through this. It's actually a really good thing that your parents are getting divorced. They can be happier this way. And it was something that I really enjoyed helping other people. Also in high school, I went to high school on the East side, which it's very diverse, not just in backgrounds, but socioeconomic status as well. So you have a lot of different divides, but one of the things we had was teenage pregnancy. And that was very common. My first day of high school, a student was shot and killed. Wow. So I have been in 
some of the worst situations. And I really believe that helps people become compassionate because if, if nothing bad has ever happened to you in your life, it's very hard to have compassion for someone who's not doing very well. But when you have been in a bad situation, you really can understand someone's pain and someone's suffering if you have been there. So I, you know, I have a story, but it's, it's a long story, but it's when you talk about asking me, how did I come to want to be a lawyer? One of the things that happened to me was in high school and it was standing up for students, whether they were being bullied or if they just couldn't have a voice of their own. I was someone who stood up for them. And that was something that made me feel like I was accomplishing something. So you've been standing up for people your entire life. I have been. And somehow my parents and my siblings saw that even at a young age. Maybe, maybe it's similar to someone who has um, an affinity for singing. Whenever you talk to a lot of musicians, they always say, oh, when I was two years old, I got up on the couch and I had my microphone and I was singing and my parents and my family encouraged me. So I just happened to have a family that saw that and encouraged me to do it. That's beautiful. And I, I can totally relate, particularly on that singing side, because I've been <laughs> doing that my whole yeah. life too. So. Right? You're just born with, everyone has a, a talent, whether it's comforting someone else. You know, you talk to people who are, who are nurses, who are teachers, they've always had that in them to want to guide people or want to try and heal them. And I think we well, all on the, on the other side of it, for the person that is the offender, how do we show compassion to and for that person? That's a great question. In the court system, and this is happening not just in Clark County, but throughout the United States, there are specialty courts. One great example is veterans court. So that's created by the legislature that veterans who may have PTSD or other issues from military service, that they are getting into trouble, not because they are hardened criminals, but because they have some, whether it's mental illness or substance abuse. And it's trying to have a holistic approach to them. It's not just the judge sentencing them for punishment, you have a whole team of people, whether it's social workers or mental health professionals who can help these people on the road to recovery. That is one way that we can show compassion. We also have a drug court and a mental health court here. I know that other jurisdictions have a homeless court and that might be something that would be beneficial for Las Vegas. I, I do a lot with homeless. It's very, very rewarding. I know some people might think, oh, isn't that dangerous to go to a certain area of town and to be around those people? But you would be surprised how respectful they are and how grateful they are just for the That's smallest cool. things. And I know that there's people who have solutions to the homeless problem. And that is something that we can, as a community, solve because nobody wants people homeless on the street and nobody really wants to be homeless. I believe that all things can be compromised and negotiated. I think that's, that's huge. Compromise is a, a big part of it because in 
our world, we're sometimes told you've got to be number one, you've got to be the winner, but it takes kind of a higher level or a broader perspective to recognize that if we do have people that are homeless who don't want to be homeless, really no one is winning in the end if we're not helping them. So I love that you're doing that work with the homeless. And that's a big part of what we're doing here at Compassionate Las Vegas is working to provide assistance and give them the resources that they need to change their lives as well and really make a difference in our city because I'm sure you've seen the news like everyone else. We don't always get portrayed in the best light and a lot of the amazing things that we're doing don't get reported on. Yeah, I agree. And you know, it's interesting when we volunteer to help the homeless, some of the homeless actually volunteer as well, helping handing out food or picking up trash. It's it's a great experience. And I, I think everyone should, if they have the time, um, there's one woman, she brings her kids. It's, a, it's just a great experience. Wow. So you said one of the homeless women brings her kids with her? Well, last night, actually, we did it, and there was a, a woman who was homeless, and she had her children with her. I was trying to fill up their bags, <laughs> overflowing with food. Um, but a woman, she's not homeless. She's lost her job. Okay. Right now, we're going through the, the virus. So she isn't working, but yet her children, who are teenagers, come and help feed the homeless, too. And this wow. is someone who has nothing herself. Yeah, so even in that moment of need, she's still expressing compassion and her kids are doing that too. I think that is something worth sharing for sure. Yeah, it's just, it's a beautiful experience that we can all come together no matter what our backgrounds are and to help each other and share. Yeah, especially when times are tough. Yeah. So one thing I've, I've been kind of wondering and I don't really know the right way to phrase the question, but when I look at the justice system overall, there are two pillars that stand out to me. And that is the rehabilitation and the restoration. What are some of the ways that, in addition to you, you mentioned the specialty courts, but what are some of the ways that you think we can execute on those two pillars more effectively? I think it actually starts in the school system and the communities. There are some communities that I've talked to and they say they're just a pipeline to prison. And we need to stop it at its root. What can we do, whether it's boys and girls clubs where they have a mentor, whether it's providing more access to technology. Right now, the, the Clark County School District has said that there's about a third of the students they have not been able to contact, that they don't have access to internet or a computer. And so those students are falling behind. And if you fall behind academically, that is just going to put you on a path to committing crimes. And one of the things that I think is important is a, a team effort, a group effort. It's not just we're going to put you in jail for 90 days, but do you have a substance abuse problem? Do you have an anger problem? I've done criminal defense, and there was a, a criminal defense lawyer, and he told me that Almost all crimes stem from an addiction, whether it's an addiction to drugs or alcohol or money or sex, they stem from addictions most of the time. That's and if we, yes, and, and the more that I did criminal law, the more I realized he was right. Mm -hmm. Whether someone had a gambling addiction, 
and then it led them to steal or if they had a drug addiction and it caused them to do property crimes. And so if we can add people who can help with that, it's better for society. It's, it's better when you have people who are working instead of in the jail system. Taxpayers don't want to spend all of their money to house people in prison. I can testify that that is true. Yeah. So if we can help people become pro- productive members of our community, it's a win-win. It just takes stepping back and reevaluating the situation. So what I'm hearing you say is we need to go to before someone even is involved with the system and provide really those resources so that they can be productive citizens from the start. Is that right? That's right. And, and it can happen at a personal level. You don't need a fancy degree or a lot of money to help out and make a difference in the community. We have a lot of retirees here who have so much wealth of knowledge and experience who I believe genuinely want to help. And if there was a way to connect at-risk youth with these people in our population who can offer so much but don't want to have a full-time job anymore but but can volunteer and be a mentor and, and help, I think we could do amazing things. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And my great-grandmother is kind of really my mom in a sense, because she would stay with us during the school year so I could come home after school. And during the summer, I would go to her house and because both of my parents were working. So she really raised me, but there's like a 60 year age gap between us. So getting to know her wisdom, everyone always said, you know, you're an old soul. And even now, to be honest with you, most of my friends are twice my age still. So. Yeah. But she she had so much to offer you. Yes. She had the time to do it. Mm-hmm. And she didn't have much money. You know, she she didn't have a, a pension because she didn't work. You know, back then the men kind of worked and, and the women took care of the homes. So she didn't have a lot of money, but she had a lot of love and a lot of wisdom and insight. And so that that shaped me into who I am today in a lot of ways. Now, one thing I joke with people about a lot of times is, you know, I've gotten my jury duty notice. And for me, I think it's my civic duty. But a lot of people are like, ah, I don't want to go to jury duty. It could be 10 years. You never know. And I'm like, well, just tell them you can tell someone is guilty by looking at them. (laughs) But I I know you can't. But do you think that there are some things we can learn by, by building these relationships across ages and across ethnicities and genders and uh, sexual orientations and, and religions and faiths. Do you think that there is something that we can learn that will connect our common humanity? Absolutely. One of the, I believe that this experience that I've had has been one of the best experiences of my life because I have knocked on doors in senior communities and I've talked to people who are lonely. They may have money because they do have a pension or they do have social security, but There's a lot of widowers and people who just want to connect on a level. And I've also spoken to people in the LGBT community who really just want to be part of society and want to be accepted. And talking to such diverse groups, whether someone's very conservative or very liberal, I've realized we all want the same things. We all want to feel valued appreciated and connected 
And just because someone is 70 years old and retired doesn't mean that we should discard them. And they can offer someone like your grandmother, teach someone how to read. It doesn't require any money. Or if someone's a handyman, fixing someone's screen door that's broken or baking them cookies. It doesn't require a lot to show that you really care and that you can help someone. I think that care piece is huge as well. How do you blend justice with caring? So, and, and what I mean by that is you have someone that was wronged and to care for the family of the person they wronged, how do you balance that with caring for that person and their family? Is that question making sense? It does make sense to me. So one of the things that I think is important is listening to the victim's family and what they think. I've been in court where someone had a DUI and killed another person. And those are mandatory minimum prison times. But the family was asking the court to have leniency on the person who killed their family member. One life was lost. They didn't want to ruin another person's life. And I think that's important to give people a voice and to use that in balancing what the best course of action to take is. And I, the person who embodies that the most to me is Brant Jean. So I don't know if you know who he is or remember, but his brother was shot and killed by a police officer in his home. And during the sentencing, forgave her because the anger being him up inside. And he was asking the court for leniency. And there are a lot of different views on whether or not he should have forgiven the woman who killed his brother. But for him personally, he needed to show compassion to heal himself. And that is something that I believe that courts should take into consideration the views of the family if they feel that compassion is the best course of action. I think what you just said is profound and I'm going to create a hashtag of some sort. I've got to think about <laughs> it, but compassion heals yourself or self-healing through compassion, something like that, because that is such a profound example. And the fact that it's not just a lifetime movie, this is happening uh -huh. really in our own city as well where people are doing similar things. I, I think it's important for, for everyone to know that good people are out there and even people we may have written off as bad people are still people. Exactly. Well, I've had my own law practice for the past 12 years and one of the great things about having that is that I have been able to meet people from every different walks of life, age range, income range, background, and one of the great things is that I can listen to their perspective and really get to know them. I had one case where a client said at the end of the case, because cases can go on for a long time, that I knew her better than her spouse did. Because we had so many conversations because you really have to get to know someone if you're going to be able to represent them fully. And I really appreciated that. And one of the things that, I really like is that in getting to know people, I can see it from their perspective. I had one client who was very, he had a, a front, you know, he was very macho, macho man. And 
one day I just asked him, you know, why do you always have to be so macho? And he said, well, if you're a man in where I live, which was a tough area where he lived, it's not good to show your feelings because it shows weakness. And I thought that was very interesting that he was just overcompensating to be a tough guy when in reality he wasn't. He just wanted to be loved and accepted, but he didn't want to appear weak. I think that's true of a lot of people and it expresses itself in different ways, whether it's being overly dramatic, maybe it's the, the pity party person, the macho man, as you mentioned, or the diva. It, it really is just, just a, a facade or a front or even a, a protective mechanism to, to defend oneself because of past hurts. But I think it takes an incredible amount of strength to show compassion and to be a caring person. I think when you've been in really bad situations and people have showed you compassion and people have helped you, in my life, people have helped me throughout my life, whether it was teachers or mentors or strangers who've helped me in a situation. And I really believe in paying it forward. I can't ever go back in time and help those people. Someone who's in a position of strength who helped me in the past doesn't need my help, but someone else does. And the only thing that I can do is that I can pay that forward. And that's how I like to live my life. One thing I like to say is that no one can be successful on their own. It, you have to give away a piece of yourself to someone else to be successful. That's so true. And I love how you talk about the paying it forward piece, because you're right. There are people that have poured into us that we will never meet again. You know, the stranger on the, the street with the, the kind smile that made our day, we'll never encounter that person again. But we can do that for someone else and in that way, pay that person back. Nadia, why did you decide to run for judge? I had actually taken the time to write a book about my experiences. A lot has happened to me in my life in high school and in college and in practicing law. And I thought, how could I connect with the most number of people? And in my life, I have read so many books that have crossed time. People who don't live in the same time as I do, who have passed on, but yet when I sit there and I read the words that they're saying, it, it speaks to my soul. And I thought, how can I help someone whether it's if they're deciding whether or not they want to practice law or go to law school to help them learn from my mistakes so they don't have to make those mistakes. But in the process, I, I didn't realize how solitary writing a book is and how much I really like being around other people. And I actually strained my arm because I was typing so much because the words were just pouring out of me because it was just all of these years of experience and these stories that I wanted to tell and I didn't want them to, to die with me. Mm -hmm. But when I, when I was injured and I couldn't write, and one of the things that I really like to do is rock climb. Oh, wow. I, it really grounds me and centers me and takes me to a place in my soul that I, I really wouldn't go to otherwise. And I couldn't do that either. 
So I couldn't write and I couldn't climb. And so it really brought me to a place of how can I help the community in the best way possible? And I thought if I ran for judge, I have experiences because I've, I've dealt with everyone in the community as far as socioeconomic status and backgrounds. And I thought I could actually bring something different to the table. I'm part of an, a legal organization and I was, someone asked me to be a board member and I said, okay, but it turned out it was a contested election. And so it really surprised me. So I had to get up and speak and people, you know, want to know why I was running. And I said, if you vote for me, expect change. If you like things the way they are, if you like the status quo, then don't vote for me because I will promise you that I will make changes. They ended up voting for me and I have made a lot of changes just to have more events and connect people physically because to me, connecting and creating relationships is very important. It's the most important thing to me. And so- So how are you managing this age where we're socially distant and we've been, it is what, week seven or so of it? It's very, very difficult for me. When I go and feed the homeless like I did last night and they said, thank you for volunteering, I, I say no, thank you for coming because they are giving something more to me than I'm giving them, whether it's a sandwich or a snack. What they're giving to my soul is much more. And during this process of, of running for judge, I have had so many more new experiences that I could put into the book, but part of me was, to be honest, fearful. I didn't want people to judge me mm. about some of the failures that I have had in my life and some of my darkest moments. Yeah. And when I felt like I couldn't move forward, but then someone smiled at me or showed me kindness and I thought, you know what, I'm doing this for them. I cannot give up on this journey, on the path that I am walking because sometimes the path is very dark and you feel like you're walking towards a cliff and you don't know what's going to be there. But then the steps appear that you didn't know were there. And that's why I'm running for judge. And I, and I hope that one day that I will show the world what I've written, but I, I feel that this has been a new chapter in my life and deserves to be added into it because I have met some of the most wonderful people, but I've also gone to the depths of my soul with, with pain and you've met yourself in this process. Exactly. And I think these are experiences that other people deserve to know about and can explore that within themselves before making that decision. Yeah, and I, I totally can relate to not wanting to, to present something too soon. And then also the, the fear in a sense of what will people think of me as a pastor, people, just automatically placed me on a pedestal. And a lot of people think, well, you can't have problems. You're a pastor. And it's like, no, I, I have issues, big ones <laughs> like everybody else. Are there any particular pivotal moments or experiences that, that shaped and formed your view of compassion and why you are so inclusive, why you pull from all sides of the aisle and 
every every political spectrum you can think of you try to invite in what what shaped that for you there have been a lot of things but one of the things is that i have a lot of supporters when it, when it talks to political who are on all different sides of the spectrum and that when they talk to me they realize that i am going to be fair and even though that we don't agree on everything i can still respect them and i can still respect their decisions even if i don't agree with it but one of the things and this was something that i i have in the book is that there was teenage pregnancy in my high school and we had a health teacher and in the first day of class he made everyone sign a paper saying if you violate any of the class rules which were no talking out of turn, no being late for class, that you were going to have to write these 10 sentences saying that you weren't going to do them again. Well, me being the person that I was, I did not feel comfortable signing that document. And so I refused to sign it. And the health teacher said, well, you can't leave the classroom until you sign it. So I just put an X instead of my signature and I handed it to him and I walked out. Wow. So, yeah, so this was in high school. So the class went on and I ended up getting a, a very, I was getting good grade in the health class. And we, you know, we had a good relationship with each other. One day a student came in, she was pregnant. Mind you, we were in high school. She was a teenager. She had to go to the bathroom. And in high school, you only have a few minutes between classes. so. She was late and the teacher said, okay, you were late, you violated these rules, you have to write these 10 sentences. And I said, no, she's pregnant. She physically couldn't hold it. She had to go to the bathroom. And he said, well, no, you talked out of turn now, you have to write the 10 sentences. And I said, no, I'm not actually. I refuse to sign it. I'm not going to do it. What you're doing is putative to her. And it became an all-out war. He started with having our class, because the teachers have six periods, one of them is a prep period, mm -hmm. of making the students write long essays, and students were coming up to me and saying, Nadia, please just write these 10 sentences, he's punishing all of us. He started, he expanded it because I refused to do it for all of his classes, not just the class that I was in, no he, way. yes, he threatened me. Um, he was showing me handbooks in class about corporal punishment. I would lay awake at night in bed, like thinking if he ever laid a hand on me, my father would probably chop his hand off. It came to a point where he refused to allow me into the classroom. And he would even tell me that he wasn't sleeping at night. It was it was, it was a horrible experience, and it got to the point where one of the vice principals called me into his office, and he said, Nadia, he said, will you do me a favor? And I said, yes, I will do you a favor. What is that favor? And he said, will you write the 10, I'm going to call them Dudleys, um, that wasn't his name, but I, uh, he, they were his last name, so we'll call them the 10 Dudleys. He said, can you just stop this to, to end what's the turmoil that's going on? And I did. I, 
even though other students offered to write the 10 Dudleys for me, I had refused because I didn't think that it was the right thing to do. The principle of it. Yes, the principle of it. But I ended up writing the 10 Dudleys because he was punishing everyone else in his classes. And that wasn't right. And when I handed him the 10 Dudleys, he had, he had failed me at that point, obviously, because he wouldn't let me into his class. So I went from one of the highest grades to the lowest grade. The school ended up reversing that failing grade. But when I handed him the Dudleys, he said to me, because he was older, and he said, I am retiring from teaching. This was the first time that the administration has not stood by me. And I realized in that moment that you can lose a battle, but you can win a war. Right. And so even when I, I still remember writing those Dudleys and, and feeling that it wasn't right, but I had to think about the greater good. I had to think about everyone else. It wasn't just about me standing up for that pregnant teenage girl anymore. And when he told me he was retiring, I realized that sometimes you can retreat and back off your position and it's the right thing to do. And that experience more than anything is the reason why I became a lawyer. To stand up and give people a voice for those who didn't have a voice. And I used to tell my clients when they hired me that I felt like I was the captain of a ship, that we were gonna board a boat and it was going to be rough and it was gonna be rocky and there were gonna be storms, but they could go underneath the boat where it was safe and warm, but I would be out battling the storms for them to get them safely across to the other side. And, and that is what I view my role was as an attorney. And what happened in high school, that was just one experience of many that happened to me. But that one is a main one that sticks with me forever. Definitely. And I think that'll stick with our, our listeners and our viewers as well. That, that lesson about you may not win the battle, but if you can win the war, if you can think strategically and big picture, and then even compromise, understanding that you can be principled and compromise, and that doesn't impact your integrity. You're still who you are as a person. I think that's a, a huge lesson that at least I will personally take away from this. So thank you for sharing that story. Yeah, it was, it's a, I've never told anyone that story publicly. So I just got an exclusive. Is that what I just said? You just got an exclusive. <laughs> I, I love it. <laughs> So one thing I try to ask all our guests is a, a compassionate practice, a, a tangible step that they can start doing today to make Las Vegas a more compassionate place. What is something that you do or you suggest that we pick up and begin to do starting today? Just something simple. Checking in on someone who's elderly is to me, whether it's even a text or a Facebook message, just to say, I'm thinking about you, do you need anything? Most of the time, they don't need anything besides a human connection. And just the fact that you took the time to just check in on them and say, do you need anything, makes them feel like they're still important. That's beautiful and so important. So we're gonna use the hashtag check in and when you check in on your older friends, older neighbors, whoever it may be, tweet about it, post it on Facebook and use the hashtag check in 
so that we know that this compassionate practice is spreading. So Nadia, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. How do folks check in with you? How do they get connected? I'm on Facebook, and so that's probably the easiest way. Um, they want to message me or Facebook friend me in Las Vegas. I will accept it. Um, no matter what their background or what their political views are, I believe that listening to all views is really important because then you can learn and you can see it from their perspective. Perfect. And just your name, Nadia Kral, and you'll pop up? That's right. K-R-A-L-L. It has the word all in it, which I like. Yeah. <laughs> That's a big theme of our show here, you know, the all and inclusive. Yeah. We're all connected. That. Yes, indeed. We are all connected. So, so I won't be, go ahead. No, no, you first, please. I, I just view that I'm not going to be on this planet forever. And so I just need to do what I can in the time that I'm here. Yeah. That's beautiful. So to sum us up, to end in our last minute or two, what is your embodiment of compassion in this moment? How are you showing and embodying compassion in Las Vegas and in the world today? What I'm doing is trying to help people who don't have food to eat, whether they're homeless or if they don't have money for gas to drive to one of the food banks to go to them. That's what I'm doing because I feel that there are people who still have income who can still share, even if it's a bag of rice or peanut butter and bread. It's still more than what they've had. And that's what I'm doing to make me feel like that I'm still connected because in this environment, we're not physically with one another. And I am such a, a physical person. I really like connecting with others. And this is my way of connecting with people and knowing that I have helped out. Beautiful. Well, thank you again. Yeah. Enjoy the rest of your day. Oh, thank you. I will. I will. Thank you, Will. I really appreciate you and the work that you're doing. This has been Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. Thank you for listening. This episode was made possible by the Jameson Foundation in partnership with the Moonridge Group. There are so many amazing things happening and so many people have inspirational stories to share. So if you are one of those people, this is your platform. Email me at will at winningwithwill.com. Use the subject line Compassionate LV and let me know your story. I'd love to have you on the show or to feature your story in a future episode. Be sure to subscribe and if you haven't already, leave a five-star review. Your review and rating helps others to find this podcast and helps to further the mission to make Las Vegas a more compassionate place to live, work, and play. Today, Nadia shared with us how compassion is active in the justice system right here in Las Vegas. What ways is compassion active in your life? Let us know as part of your review and we may just share it on the air. In case you didn't know, Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast, is now on YouTube. If you want to not only hear these awesome stories, but see our guests, subscribe to our visual podcast on YouTube. Just search Compassionate LV Podcast with Will Rucker, and the channel will pop right up. Love and compassion are not luxuries. They are necessities. 
Live the golden rule and treat others the way you would want to be treated. Together, we can make a difference. Together, we will make the world a more compassionate place. Know that you are not just a drop in the ocean. You are the entire ocean in a drop. Be well, my friends, and we will meet again on the next episode of Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast.